0: Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. This podcast is actually a recording of a live event I did at TED in Vancouver with Tim Urban. Tim Urban is the author of the blog, Wait But Why, and of the upcoming book, The Story of Us. Tim and I talked about procrastination, the shortness of life, artificial intelligence, political polarization, and much more. Unfortunately, I wasn't allowed to film this event, so this is an audio-only podcast. Apologies to the people who like to watch on YouTube. So without further ado, Tim Urban. Welcome to an episode of Conversations with Coleman that doubles as a TED Discovery session. Thank you so much for coming. And thank you to my guest, Tim Urban. Thanks for coming on the show, man. Thank you for having me. All right. So first question. Uh, Here at TED, you're kind of a celebrity because everyone knows you from your procrastination TED Talk a few years ago. My question is, since you've given that talk on procrastination, which is, I'm told, the most viewed TED Talk in the history of TED, has your procrastination problem gotten better, worse,
1: or stayed the same? It's a tough answer because on one hand, I feel like I am a little bit better in general, because I take it more seriously. I think I like, the more years you get kind of beaten down by a certain kind of self-defeating problem, I think the more you, I, I think, you know, part of the reason that um, procrastination can destroy so many people is they don't take it seriously. They don't, they don't think of it like a serious addiction or like a serious problem. It's like a funny problem. And so I think I've learned to take it even more seriously. and And I have come up with some strategies that have helped me. The reason it's a complicated answer is because um, I also started my first book like pretty soon after this talk and that exacerbated the absolute worst parts of every single vice I had. I mean, it was, it's just right. Trying to, cause you know what happens with procrastination. So is, when did you start the book? I don't want to, Coleman. <laughs>
0: I, I know the answer to this question, but they no, don't. No
1: prying questions here. Uh, I may have started the book in 2016. And when is it coming out? October of this year. Okay. So do the math, folks. Look, it's a beast of a book, but it should have taken three and a half years, not six. And so that's two and a half years that I lost to this problem. That's a tragedy. You know, we don't have that many years. Like in your prime, you know, if you're, you know, a writer or whatever, you might have like 20 good years to really get your stuff out. That's a that's like over a tenth, right? So it's this is like a, you know, classic. Procrastination thing—it really is a huge problem. And the reason something like a book is so hard is because there's there's two parts of your brain that are kind of in a struggle here, and and this I I call it, you know, instant gratification monkey and the uh, rational decision maker. And the monkey cannot see the future, and so the farther the fact that a book, the rewards for it are so far in the future that dopamine hit is years away. The monkey cannot see it; it's way over the horizon, and so it is just a constant, like just personal struggle. Where and if you have a, a you know, an article you're writing where it's gonna be published next week, the excitement of that can actually help the monkey maybe get like get excited about it too. So anyway, I, I do think I've started to improve, but man, it's, it does not it's not really showing in my current project. It just occurs to me now that the point you're making about
0: the distance in time between when you do something and when the consequence happens, that's been a really stable finding among criminologists, which is that it deters crime much more to get a small punishment right after you do a bad thing than to get a big punishment far in the future. And uh, it it occurs to me, you know, like you write a book, if you don't know, once you finish the book, usually it's not coming out for nine months. It's just nine months of twiddling your fingers. And in some way that kind of reduces the psychological incentive to finish such a large project as, as you're working on.
1: Yeah, that fight or flight part of your brain that can help you really, you know, it's not on because it's just so far away. It's, it's, it's our, you know if you think about how our brains were wired for the world they were wired for you know tens of thousands of years ago. Like the thing you had to be you know you, you had to react to st- your hardcore needs. You know protect yourself from wild animals and you had to get enough food so you don't starve and mating and things that were immediate rewards or immediate danger. The idea of like planning for something you know two years ahead is just, it's just not something that our brains are good at. And and some people have learned to be better at that than others. um, But it's, we're all kind of overriding our instincts when we do really long-term projects, I think. So you're the
0: author of the Wait But Why blog, which has been widely read since about 2013. And uh, one of the recurring themes on your blog, and this is in your famous procrastination post, it's also in your How to Pick a Career post. One of the recurring themes on your blog is that life is very short and you have a way of making that truism actually vivid, right? So famously, you had a picture of all the weeks in your life represented basically as dots and you look at them and you, you suddenly realize it's really not that many weeks. So one question I have is when I read your posts that really make that feeling of the shortness of life vivid in me it makes me anxious and i'm not actually sure that it makes me behave more wisely with my time so my question is when you feel that life is short you feel the vividness of that does that have an effect on your behavior
1: i think for me i think i think it is the kind of thing that um, everyone has a different reaction to seeing their weeks of a you know the chart he's talking about is i do you know 52 by 90 grid of, of little boxes and that's that's the weeks in a 90 year life and most of us are at least halfway down, you know, or, or a third of the way down that thing. You're like tenth of the way down. But this is part of, I think, what I'm a little bit of related to this concept I was just talking about about our brains are wired for something specific, like it's a computer built for specific programming. And I think part of that programming is this delusion that the way that we're what we're used to is just how things will always be. And so that can be a lot of things. It can be that the people we love who are around, well, that they're always going to be around. You know, we have infinite hangouts with the people we love and and the weeks, you know, we have, um, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of millions of weeks ahead of us. Just this kind of subconscious thing, I think a lot of us think. And that's not true. It's very much finite. And especially I think when you apply this to the people you you love spending time with, um, you know, if you see someone, you know, if there's a friend, you know, you, you know, you get a drink with this friend about once a year, you know, maybe you live in different cities, but it's a good friend. You might have like 40 hangouts left with them total. And like, whoa, you know, like that's you think of them is i have thousands of hangouts left with them. But no, it's actually like 40. It's like, you, can, you know, so I think the, and the point is that that has different effects on different people. For some people, it might make them anxious and might make paralyze them or whatever. I think more often, at least, I think we're more likely to later regret like the decisions we made based on the delusion that we had infinite time, if that makes sense. like I think that for me, at least what, when, I, when I think about it that way, I'm like, well, I don't want 40 hangouts with this friend. I want hundreds more. So how do I do that? I can actually do that. I can just see them three times a year, four times a year. And, you know, and when it comes to personal projects, you know, you look and you're like, wow, you know, here are the weeks I've got left. And maybe these are the ones before I'm like too old to want to work anymore, or, you know, be good at working anymore. And so for me, it's motivating. I totally understand that some people would look at that and maybe it would make them less motivated in some way. I don't know. But but either way, it seems like it's looking at reality. I think it's usually better to have our, our, our actually a good understanding, a clear headed view of reality than delusion, usually.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's this advice to live every
1: day like it's your last. I don't like that advice, by the way. I'm like, I I would be living such a weird day if it were my last so
0: So that's kind of how I feel when I'm reminded of the shortness of life. It's like, it's just an uptick in anxiety without an attendant necessarily sharpening of my ability to live in the moment. And like, I think of the days when, you know, my favorite days are days when I've I'm super passionate about something or I'm super locked in. It's usually not because I'm thinking about the finiteness of life. It's because I've somehow just fell into something that I've gotten lost in. And I'm not thinking about time at all. Not the finiteness of it or, or at all. Just time ceases to exist. You're flowing. The flow state. Yeah.
1: Flow's the best for every, you know, whether it's with your friends. It was a great talk yesterday about fun. And uh, that the flow—that's such an important part of that. So if you think of flow with work, but also there's flow with so many other parts of life, and it's just deep presence. And you're—you know—it's like you said, you're locked in. You're all of your parts of your brain are, are are together working on this thing or enjoying this thing. And I agree with you. I guess for me, it's like flow happens when I something kicks my ass to actually start. I have to start working. I have to engage. I have to schedule that thing with that person in the first place. I have to like. The flow doesn't just happen. It happens because I made some good long-term decisions at some point that have gotten me now into a position to have flow. And I think that the enemy of that for me is complacency is when I think I have unlimited time. So you get kind of lazy and, you know, I'll have a project I want to do. I really want to, you know, write, uh, you know, write, you know, write a TV show or whatever it is. I want to have a great idea for all all of us. We'll do a big family reunion somewhere. And to me, it's like, yeah, but not this year, you know, maybe next year. And, And it's so easy for those things to just never happen. And that's where a lot of flow might come from, is these projects that I dream about. So yeah, I mean, and it's not, and it's, uh, I don't even think I'm disagreeing with you here as much as like, I think everyone has a different reaction because everyone has their own struggles. And I think certain struggles are really helped by seeing that concretely, you know, being reminded of time. And then maybe others, like you said, others are doing just fine with getting into flow. And this actually might hurt that. So yeah, I don't think it's for everyone. I just know that, you know, I, I judge what I create by what I judge it by my own reaction to. it. And for me, I'm like, I need this. And so therefore I put it out.
0: So many of your blog posts have stick figure drawings, which I assume you do yourself, right? Torturously. Yeah. Like it will be like a 20,000 word blog post with lots of stick figures that help you put basically a face to an idea. And you'll come up with these characters that basically personify ideas like the social approval mammoth, or the panic monster from the procrastination TED Talk, or the uh, the yearning octopus is one that I really liked. Maybe you can describe these briefly. But where did you get the idea to put so many stick figures in these blog posts and to come up with these animal characters in what is otherwise like really so? Because it's like the ideas you're dealing with are pretty adult, pretty like you like you'll cite studies and like all kinds of stuff, but then it will become very accessible because you're using these storytelling techniques. So where did you get those ideas from?
1: I mean, partially, you know, it's like, this is how I like to learn. Like if I'm, if I'm reading something and I look and it's full of like colorful visuals and charts and comics, I, I'm happy. And so I think some other people would be like, just write, I don't want to, what are all these visuals? And that's fine. It's not, you know, it's not. So for me, it happens to be how I like to learn. But the reasoning behind it, the reason I like it as a learner is I think that so often, the concepts we remember and that we think about clearly are the ones that have a clear label in our heads. And Adam Grant did a TED Talk last year about languishing, and this was a concept that a lot of us kind of understood intuitively, but the label was like, "Oh, okay, I'm languishing. that's what it is. I'm not depressed, I'm not this." He added a label onto something that I think was kind of a gray area, and I think it helps it, that kind of thing can help you notice it and then start to kind of be able to have strategies to, to deal with it. In
0: one of your posts, you used the word humble brag as an example of this.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like it's like before you knew that word, there was something vaguely irritating about a way a lot of people employ By the way, then you realize I was like, I've definitely done this myself before. (laughs) Um, but you know, a humble brag is when you are basically bragging, but you do it in this format where you're like pretending the classic example is like, if you tweeted something, if someone got off the TED stage this week and they're like, wow, like, can't believe they let me on the TED stage, you know, like, or like, they, may, they must have made a mistake like letting me do a TED talk. And it's like, you just want to tell everyone you did a TED talk, which is fine. Go for it with the brag, but don't like pretend you're like, you know, it's this way to like pretend you're not bragging. Anyway, the point is that that was a concept that we all understood. But when it was one Twitter account, I think started, you know, it was called Humble Brag," and they started retweeting humble brags on Twitter. And once you do that, it was like, oh my God, this thing is so annoying. And then I was like, I need to never do that again myself. Like once you realize it, I'm like, it's so lame. So when I have, for example, the like the mammoth you mentioned. So the mammoth is my social survival mammoth. It's the, basically it is the part of your brain that is really, really concerned with what other people think of you. Like you are, It is the part of you that doesn't want to sing in public and really going to, you know, I don't want to do public speaking because what if people judge me? And what if I'm, you know, that doesn't want to approach, you know, approach a a stranger you're attracted to and start up a conversation in a bar because, oh, what if I get rejected? And and the thing that's interesting about this is that to me, that is a part of the brain that made a lot of sense. It's there. Everything part of our brain is there because it made sense in 50,000 BC and in 50,000 BC or 10,000 BC you know, you're living in a small tribe there, you know, for example, talking about approaching a stranger in a bar, there's a few potential mating options and they're all friends with each other. And, you know, you make an awkward move on one of them or you try to, you know, start up a conversation and you're really uncomfortable. And they, they're they like, oh, that was so awkward. And they reject you. They're telling their friends. They're all laughing. Or, you're probably never going to mate. Right. So huge consequences. And and, and it's a Speak sp- for yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. And so you're in this very like small little community where like, oh, like everyone's going to know. Meanwhile, today, we live in a totally different world. You can go out in New York City to, uh, you know, again, I'm sounding like an old man because no one goes to bars anymore to meet people. They they do it on apps. But anyway, you can go out and you want to approach someone and there's this incredible fear of like, you know, uh, what if I get rejected? And it's like, That's an old part of the brain firing, interpreting this as the way it used to be, even though the world you're in that has nothing to do with that anymore. Like the world you're in, there's no no negative consequences to being rejected romantically, to public speaking in a situation where it's just not that big a deal. But that part of our brain is still active, and so many things are like that, where um, we are being run by kind of these instincts that don't make sense right now, and so. How do we overcome that? Well, first, let's label it. Let's like say, oh, that's the mammoth. The mammoth is going crazy. But the mammoth is not very smart. The mammoth doesn't know it's 2022. The mammoth thinks it's 10,000 BC. And so once you realize that, you take it a little less seriously. So you start to say, that's just my mammoth. It doesn't matter. And it's, it's amazing how much, you know, how powerful that can be. How empowering it can be to be able to notice that something is not really scary. That's my mammoth thinks it's scary. Huge difference. And all this courage starts to come out that, that wasn't there before. So I I think in general, you know, the panic monster and, you know, the yearning octopus you mentioned, which is, you know, a a way to kind of think about all the things you might want from a career. And actually, like, let's parse these out here. and, 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 you know, each arm of the octopus is like a different thing you can yearn for. It can be for attention and, you know, social type things. It can be for wealth. It can be for free time. It can be for impact. You know, we all know that, but it's kind of jumbled in our head. So let's just actually label these arms and and notice that these are different arms. And actually, you know, these are tools of self-reflection, I guess. And if you use a little animal, then it helps people remember it. The instant gratification monkey is something that is easier to remember than if I say, you know, your limbic system fires in a certain way and it it has these, you know, impulses. But the monkey, you can, you know, okay, yeah, it's just my monkey. So that's how I like to learn at least. So... The concept of an evolutionary
0: mismatch, which is what you're talking about, it's, you know, we are wired one way by evolution, and now that's mismatched with our circumstances today. That's one of the reasons you cite, uh, one of the many reasons you cite in some of the very long posts that you've done about political polarization, How, uh, where you basically explain using a bunch of different paradigms why it is that our country is so much more divided over politics today than it was many, many decades ago. And there's a bunch of different reasons why this is. And you go into detail um, about this in the post. And this is largely the topic of your upcoming book, which you've been procrastinating. But my basic question here is why is political polarization a bad thing? Right? Just stepping back, is it such a bad thing that we're more divided? What motivates you to be so curious and to, to want to explain this phenomenon in the first
1: place? I mean, part, part, what I first got me into it, it was just, I mean, I don't even, it's not even my favorite kind of topic, really. Um, it's that I, I was trying to write about all this other stuff. I write about, you know, colonizing Mars and AI, and I write about procrastination. And I like to, these are things that so many of the, the forward thinking future things and this utopia, I like to imagine and where we're going and how cool the future could be. I was like, man, none of that. We're not going to get to enjoy any of that. If we like, if our society is kind of going down the tubes here, like in a way that, uh, think if you take a step back, it's a pretty like unfortunate story that has been happening. Uh, but I think it's hard to see it. So I was trying to zoom out really far. And the reason I, I think political polarization is usually bad is that, so if you think about what, you know, what what are politics? It's It's a vast array of the way mm-hmm. governance can happen, right? The way we can all live together and the way societies can work. And there's so many different ways societies can work, even within kind of you say, even within kind of like a liberal democratic structure, there's so many ways healthcare can work and education can work and, you know, justice can work. And, and we're always, it's an, it's always, it's not just that we're never, we don't ever know exactly the perfect way to do anything. But even if we had all the knowledge, different people have different values and you're you're actually, some people just value A more than B and they're going to now say, therefore this healthcare system should be like this. And some people value B more than A. So they're going to, so we're never going to fully come to a full agreement, A and B. Then the the world's changing incredibly quickly. You know, you have, you know, crypto comes along. Well, what should the rules and laws and and norms and customs be around this whole new thing? The internet comes along, you know, social media comes along. So the point is that this is the only possible way for this to be is a very ongoing, rich, vigorous discussion full of disagreements and heated discussions and 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 frustrating compromises. And, you know, it's a battle of persuasion. It's a battle to try to create a you know take the ideas in your head you know and and create a mind changing movement if you can spread them far enough then that can become the policies and the laws so this is to me like how i think politics should be ideally if we we're all being grown ups right a vigorous open discussion now that wouldn't be especially polarized it doesn't make sense there's there's a, so many different dimensions of this there's so many different ways it can go it's, it's nuanced it's people should be all over the place there should be a rich kind of vibrant discussion polarization when that's going on it's because a whole different mechanism has kicked in. I'm talking about, you know, the thing I just described as a very rational kind of grown-up way for politics to be, where we're all treating ideas and potential policies like science experiments. Let's let's argue for them. Let's see if, you know, we can convince, who can convince more people, and then let's test it out, and then let's evaluate it. That's great. But remember, this other part of our brain, this part that is produces the monkey and the mammoth I've talked about, This part also likes to identify with their ideas. It has this instinct that, again, maybe served it well 50,000 years ago to vigorously agree with a group around it and form a tribe. And the, the tribe is defined by agreement with these ideas. And all the people start to define themselves as I am a radical, I am a conservative, whatever. And that becomes who we are. And people like us all agree with this. And the people who don't, they're bad, they're wrong, they're stupid, they're evil, they're dangerous. And what ultimately, usually what you're really saying is they're subhuman. This is what the psychology that kicks in. It's this totally different psychology. And it has nothing to do with the thing I was talking about before, the vigorous discussion of what's the best way. It becomes religious ideology that happens to not be based on God. It happens to be based on, you know, a political ideology, but it's treated the same way. And I think that, so I I think of it as, you know, rather than left, right, center only, I also think of it as kind of up and down. And I bring a second dimension in that the high rungs of this ladder is where we're having that very open, rational, nuanced discussion. And down below, it's become a religious war. And that's never even about the policies. If you notice, hardcore political tribes, they will just flip on a policy. They will totally have an opposite view of what their supposed principles are, because it's this shape-shifting kind of survival machine. And, and, and principles are just kind of a facade, I think, in this case. So when I see polarization, it doesn't make sense that everyone would suddenly, that, you know, someone has, who has this view on guns, well, of course, they're going to also then have this view on climate change, and also this view on racial justice, and also this view on, I'm like, it doesn't make sense that every person would be aligned all down the same exact part of this checklist. That tells me some whole other thing is going on. It's unproductive. It's nasty. It doesn't end up helping things. It doesn't move the country forward. And to me, it's not that It's one or the other. There's always both of these, right? There's always people on the high rungs having that kind of political discussion, and then there's tribes. The thing that scares me about right now is that the balance between high and low, I think, is shifting. I think that the low rungs, that psychology is on the rise maybe it's because of social media, maybe it's because the parties, and I'm talking about the U.S. mostly, maybe it's because the parties purified ideologically, so suddenly there were no more progressive Republicans and no more conservative Democrats, and suddenly it it takes away a lot of that kind of the thing that chills it out, that spreads it out. You have these, you know, congealed ideologies. There's a lot of potential reasons I could get into over the last 50 years. No one's fault. I think it's a changing environment, a changing landscape has produced has altered our behavior in a way that has made this what I call low-rung kind of psychology, this polarization kind of religious tribalism in politics has spread, it's gone viral. And it's capturing all kinds of people and more people are, are in that mindset than I think there used to be. And that's a scary trend.
0: So I want to give one example of what you're talking about. I've talked about this on my podcast before, but if you can all remember when COVID first began to really come on our radars in... America and in Europe, early March 2020, when those first articles were coming out, we were just beginning to lock down, just beginning to buy masks and realize that this was not an epidemic. This was a pandemic and it was going to change life for two weeks or so, we thought. You know, I remember reading the articles in the New York Times and the Atlantic and the Wall Street Journal, and everyone was trying to figure out the death rate Right at that time. Is it of people die from this thing? Is it 5% of people die from this thing? And we just knew very little. We had very little data. We knew Italy was suffering massively and they were triaging at hospitals. You know, that that seemed like a worst case scenario, but other places seemed not to be doing so well or or not to be doing quite as bad. But there was really this sense where every article I would read, I noticed I didn't have a single thought about whether this was a left-wing or a right-wing paper at first right like if i was reading the times i wasn't thinking oh they're going to take the liberal take on this if i was reading the journal i wasn't thinking they're going to take a conservative take on this because there wasn't a liberal or conservative take on the question yet naively i thought it was going to stay that way two or three weeks later the battle the battle lines had been drawn and the right was going to be the party that was going to downplay things and the left was going to be the party that was going to upplay things and at that point we basically turned into like the climate change debate where now neither side trusts sources from the other. And if you identify as a conservative, you think the libs are trying to do this. And if you identify as a liberal, you think the conservatives are trying to do this. And we import the whole, basically the psychology of like sports into our politics. And I just remember thinking, my God, It was so refreshing those two weeks where I could just read everything and not have any kind of thought about the notion of political bias. So I guess that brings me to my next point, which is you recently did a post where you imagined that a civilization of intelligent creatures that are a hundred million times smaller than us humans created COVID-19, created the virus in order to create a common enemy so that the humans in our world would unite, would come together against this common enemy and sort of stop our squabbling because the, their life depended on us not, say, blowing each other up with nuclear weapons. My question to you is, why did COVID-19, which could have been a uniter since it can kill everyone equally, doesn't care about race, party, etc., why was it not like an independent day, aliens come to Earth and we all come together? Why did that
1: not happen? I mean, I had to say, I wrote that right in those early days. And I was like, it's, we're unity. This is so fun. And um, no, it was actually fascinating to watch. I mean, it was sad and frustrating, but it was, it was interesting to watch something that, it, like you said. It really should have just been a uniting thing. It's, oh, my God, we're fighting against a virus. Like, that's clearly the bad guy, the virus. And, like, obviously, like, we're all the the same team here. And, you know, this is kind of so I think if you talk about that trend of kind of the tribal uh, element, the tribal psychology in politics on the rise and the kind of nuanced, rational debate element being kind of. Increasingly waning and becoming quieter, and what I think it's done, I think of it as hypercharged tribalism. You know, it's if you think about the the middle of the century, you actually had. It's not that we were less tribal; it's that it was the, the tribalism was distributed in a bunch of areas. So you you had Republicans and Democrats, right? You did have that, and and there there was you know you know presidential elections, and you had left and right that existed, which is like a the binary national debate. But above it and below it, you also had tribalism. What I mean by that is above it. What you had was patriotism. You had Soviet Union, bad. U.S., good. Us, on that level, the us was the U.S. Them was the Soviet Union back then. um, And before that, Hitler. And so that's a force that, it's not necessarily a nice thing. That can be nasty xenophobia and whatever, but it chilled the national left versus right thing a little bit because, well, there was also something that we're united about. Meanwhile, below it, uh, within the parties, you actually had so much if you look at the 1960 and 1964 elections, um, I mean, there was there was so much uh, there was such a wide spectrum of ideologies within each party. And often, you know, the the conservative Democrats would agree more with the conservative Republicans and then than they would with the progressive Democrats and vice versa. And so what happens there is that tension can kind of help, again, with the big left versus right thing. It chills it out. It makes it less. So some people are really focused on hating other people in their party, and other people are really focused on hating the other party, and other people are really focused on hating the other country. And so it kind of distributed. Now, what you had since then is that the Soviet Union has waned as a common enemy, so we don't have much of a common enemy, um, or we haven't. And uh, so that's kind of gone away. And then the parties purified ideologically, so that kind of went away. And what you ended up with concentrated kind of tribalism. Then comes the internet, then comes cable TV and and these news that doesn't necessarily need to cater to the whole country anymore. And it can start to say, let's make people who believe this stuff really happy. And the other people will hate us, but that's okay, which was a new thing. And of course, tribal media comes around. And so it's a whole different landscape. And so I think then you've taken this concentrated tribalism that's gone from distributed to concentrated. It's then you get to hypercharged. And, And that is such a swirling vortex it's so much gravity all grouped into this one tribal divide. It sucks in everything. It sucks in things that should have nothing to do with politics. COVID is the perfect example. It's, it's, it wasn't even close in retrospect. It wasn't like this was, oh, COVID almost survived and may, I didn't, it was like a black hole. It, everything's over the event horizon. Everything's getting sucked in. And so COVID comes in and like you said, it could have gone the other way around. If you look actually at a bunch of the Democrats when Trump was in office, Pelosi and others were saying, well, I'm not taking that vaccine, not the Trump vaccine. People forget that. But if Trump had won re-election, I think the vaccine discussion would have been totally reversed. And this is what I said earlier about how the principle, when you, when you actually look and you see hypocrisy, you realize there's not, the principles aren't what's going on here. It's what's good for our team right now. And so I think it was predictable that this was going to happen. I think that, and what scares me is we have a lot of important debates to have. Because what happens when something becomes politicized, the vigorous, productive discussion, which is when you can actually learn stuff collectively, ends. And now it's everyone digs their heels in here. Everyone digs their heels in here. There's no more mind-changing movements. Everyone already knows what they think. And then knowledge can just stall for so long. It can take us so long to learn new things in that environment. So we, as a big collective brain. Becomes very stupid. We lose our ability to collectively be smart and to learn things. Now, this is COVID. How about when we're talking about genetic engineering of babies, of embryos? That is technology that's coming. Like, can you? It would be so great to be able to discuss what's right and wrong here, you know. But you know, it's going to happen. I don't know which party, but one party is going to like it, the other party is going to hate it, and it's just going to. And so, if, if collectively we can't have productive discussions about important things. We're going to be a very stupid collective society moving into a very intense future. And I think COVID's just like the least of it. I think it's just now another one right now is Ukraine, which is interesting because it seems like almost kind of the unity thing has been lasting a little bit, although I think Americans have also kind of secretly gotten bored with the whole thing. Like Twitter, they've just like moved on. But either way, like it feels like, OK, Ukraine thing has gone on for a while and I'm just waiting for the midterms to start. And it's, I mean, even there, you know, you can see there's some elements already that, you know, the fence of Russia and Putin has kind of been uh, in certain areas, a right-wing thing, but it's not as clean cut. And I just, I'm just waiting for it to start to become very clear where once that happens now, if you're on our team, you cannot say anything other than these opinions. If you're on that team, you can't say anything other than these opinions. and, And there goes the discussion.
0: Yeah. I think somehow the fact that we used to be united about Russia and that that has deep roots in American history possibly preventing some polarization on this issue, right? Because like as Americans, we're sort of used to uniting around being anti-Russia. That has deep roots for us psychologically. So in a way, we're we're more united about this definitely than we were about COVID, despite some people on certain fringes, you know, taking more of Russian propaganda seriously. But um, I want to totally switch topics right now. You've written a very long post about artificial intelligence and... Recently Google released a neural network that answers questions just like the ones I'm asking you. Like questions almost as human as the ones I'm asking you and gives serious reasoned responses to them. Like it will give like a four sentence response in perfect English explaining like reasoning several steps through your question not just spitting out facts like it had access to Wikipedia, but thinking, well, I know that Tim Urban is a blogger and I know that he wrote about Elon Musk, so he very probably knows how electric engines work. So, you know, like it will do like a three or four step chain of reasoning and come to an answer to your non-obvious question. That's where artificial intelligence already is. And so my question to you is, do you think that your profession the popular blogger, explainer, writer will be replaced by artificial intelligence in your lifetime.
1: There's a hierarchy of skills that will be replaced by AI. Kind of, uh, it, it, we kind of have a sense of the order. So computation and calculation and kind of uh, more rote tasks um, have already kind of mostly been been replaced. Um, and then you get to up on the higher. Here's things that involve empathy or real-time decision making or kind of artistic creativity and things like this. Th- those are kind of the the later things to go. but i'm I'm a pretty firm believer that all these things we th- you know if you look at the history of gaming with AI, we have a long history of being very confident well this humans will always be better at this. And man, we're just wrong again and again and again. you know it was chess, 1996, Deep Blue, IBM's Deep Blue beats Gary Kasparov, never has looked back and you get two then the people thought go is a different game there's so many degrees of freedom and it's just not a game that that an ai can actually beat a human at alpha go i think it was 2017 20, 2016 started winning those and has not not looked back, right? And so just watching these stories, I'm very loath to ever take the position like, no, AI will, there'll always be, you know, music. music. No, that's always going to be human. Storytelling. And so, no, what do I do? I I synthesize information. I storytell. I try to be funny about it. I try to, you know, explain things clearly. None of those things to me seems above AI. Uh, So, yeah, I think now the question is, will there be preferences? Will some people prefer just, there, there's, you know, well, well, some people, and maybe people in our generations, you know, will say, I want a human, right? I don't want to read an AI article. And then our grandkids will be like, you're so like, it's just such a random thing to care about. And like, maybe down the road, truly, no one will care about whether a human did it or not. To me, I'm like, you know, people are like, oh, CGI porn. I'm like, I think people are going to still want to, you know, watch actual people. And um, I kind of believe that down the road generations, I don't think anyone will care. I, I think that Um, A lot of things that we think human and matters, you know, it's a little bit. um, It's because we're in a world where we grew up in a world where computers were kind of, you know, they had no personalities and they were very unhuman in so many ways. And I think that's going to change. I think people are going to be genuinely good friends with AI. Now, I think that's going to actually happen. It's going to be people are going to have romantic relationships. Sounds insane. I really believe this is going to happen. So blogging, yeah. No, I'm going to be now again. It doesn't. The question is in that world if some person wants to blog and they have their own style, can they kind of compete? Can they also do something and get their own following? Maybe. I don't necessarily know that it's the kind of thing. Some things will be, you know, GPS, like it's obviously better to use AI there than ever use human for directions. Like it just makes more sense. So I don't know. I don't know whether there will truly be no need for any kind of human artists or explainers. But um, and by the way, I think this is a good thing. Like, you know, people are like, oh, well, what would the humans do? Well, that's like, you know, in the farming days when you start to being like, well, what would the humans do once they don't farm? Well, we actually found lots of stuff to do outside of farming. And so, like, I think if anyone in the world can Google any topic and get a really, like, interesting, funny, you know, well-explained, accurate explainer, that's better world. That's great. And the people like me, we will, I'll find other things to do. You know, I'm not, like, I'm not too worried about, like, I don't know. And, and Yeah.
0: It does make sense, but I'm not sure I agree with it. So I think I agree, um... I'm hesitant to ever bet against AI taking over some competence. If it's about, if what you do were just about synthesizing information, writing good prose, then I think it's only a matter of time before AI can do that. But where I disagree is that people will stop caring about the difference between an AI-created product and a human-created product. I think what people go to when they read your blog or when they listen to my podcast. I don't think they're just going because we are good synthesizers of information and write well or speak well. I think after a while, they get to know you and they care that you're a real person and they care that you have some kind of judgment that they've placed trust in. And that's why they want to keep following you. And I think, I mean, it's, it's similar to musicians, right? So there's this problem on Spotify where there's all these fake artists. There's basically artists that don't actually exist, don't have any profile on the internet, but crank out all these songs. And it's really, it's like some genius in Sweden that makes like 5,000 songs, creates like 30 fake artists. And Spotify pays less for those songs than they would, than they would pay for a real artist. And then it's in a playlist on a coffee shop And Spotify profits that way. But they have no fandoms, right? There's no fans of those artists. And I think it's human nature, even 100 years from now, probably even 200 years from now, that we want to follow people. We want to follow real people that have a story and can suffer and that we know, that we feel some connection to. So I think it won't be on the supply side that limits artificial intelligence. It will be on the demand side.
1: Intuitively, what you're saying makes perfect sense. So for example, here's what, why
0: don't more men pay for sex? Very few men actually pay for sex, right? So like, because what you want is more than just the, you want the subjectivity of the other person, right? You want the real experience. And I think there's an analogy to me made there with like a, like an AI, which is not to make a direct comparison between sex workers and AI. I know someone will take it that way. I promise. That's not what I mean. What I mean is we often consume things precisely because the person on the other end is a real person that's like a, doing things for the same reasons that we are. And that has such a deep basis in our psychology. I don't think that we can change that culturally.
1: Like we want it to be a human. I'm a 20th century baby like you. And 20th century babies for sure will all intuitively agree with this. And you might be right. I mean, I can't, it's hard to predict what this world will be like. But for all of us it seems so obvious what you're saying right like what you're what i think what you're saying about like people who follow someone like me or you is that they're not just looking for the information they want connection right and that's part of what makes us enjoy our work if i wrote a good blog post and i just put it into a folder and no one saw it i wouldn't get anything almost nothing out of it because what i get out of it is is the connection that it it gives me with other people right and so we're all you know we are that is deeply wired into who we are to be social and to want connection and to You know, and to not want to feel alone. And the question is, you know, down the road, will following AI instead of people, will that feel lonelier? Seems like it would. I think in our world, it's easy to see it that way because AI isn't really better than we are at most things. But how about when the absolute best music you've ever heard, just like whatever you like, you can find the catchiest music. Yes. You know, you're maybe not, you're, there's something that's different that it wasn't written by a human, but you might not care. You might be like, oh my God, I, I just cannot get the song out of my head. I'm like, it's like the dopamine hit. It's just so good. I can't stop dancing to it. I think when things get really good, we might find that like the, the what we thought was so important about the human element is a little overrated. Um, that's what I said. I think people will genuinely be friends with AI. I think so, which of course, so that's, I guess the point. If, if we are in a world where people are friends with AI then I think that it would follow that people also have AI writers they like and AI music they like. In the world you're talking about where we can't quite, you know, it's not the same, I think that would be a world where being friends with AI couldn't probably doesn't exist. So are you making a, are you kind of predicting that there'll never be a world where people are genuinely good friends with AI? I think so, yeah.
0: Unless we actually come to believe that they have a subjective experience. A consciousness. A consciousness like we do. And maybe that's possible. I mean, I wonder, I think Kant argued that like pets and dogs are basically like they don't have any subjective experience, right? There's nothing it's like to be them. If you traded places with a dog, it would be like the lights going out It'd be like dying. We don't believe that nowadays. There's no reason to believe that. We pretty much have a strong feeling that there's something it's like to be your dog. Your dog feels happy. It feels a dog kind of happiness, a dog kind of pain, a dog kind of pleasure, et cetera. And that's the necessary requirement to feel love, to feel any connection. So if we come to feel that way about AI, I just, I just. Okay,
1: but uh, really. have you have you seen the scene with Japanese AI pets? No, it's it's getting rolling, and and they don't shit, and they don't need food, and they you can turn them off. Get in the plane, turn them off, throw it in the suitcase. It seems again, this seems very silly to us. Here's the thing: you ever done VR where you you walk off a cliff in VR? You ever done this? You know, a VR where you're on a, on your heights and man, that same dumb part of your brain that thinks it's scary to approach a stranger in a bar is really not wanting to step off that cliff because it does not. So why are movies good? Why are we crying at the end of movies or super scared? Makes no sense. The rational part of our brain knows this is a screen and these are actors. Doesn't matter. We love the movie because the big part of our brain is real dumb and gets really into stuff that the other part of our brain is like, oh honey, you're scared of the screen or the actor. Oh, you're sad about the actor dying and the fake thing doesn't matter. We really enjoy the movie. Right. And so I think that same part of our brain that doesn't want to walk off a cliff and is really scared of scary movies is going to actually feel really, they're going to really miss their AI friend. And they're, you know, and they're they're really going to have a huge crush on this, you know, new AI person they've been seeing. And they're going to love that little adorable AI pet that, remember, we're talking down the road, then the pet is going to be trained by you and it'll act differently if you train it differently. And it'll, really seem real and it'll trick our brains in the same way. So uh, that's that's kind of, you know, and then by the way, let's also remember that we're also moving towards a world, and this is a whole other world, but brain machine interfaces. We're going to be putting you know, devices in our brains, a lot of us, and certainly a lot of your kids and grandkids. And in that world, we can alter, you know, we can actually, you know, make ourselves feel a certain way, which again, to us, we are into 20th century babies. This all sounds awful and dystopian and scary. And, you know, we're old people. We're few, we're the future old grandparents who will not get what our grandkids are like, oh, they're so like stubborn and old. And so I, I think that, you know, I don't know. I just, I'm just want to be very like humble to the future and be like anything. I, I'm very wary of, my own kind of instincts right now. And yeah.
0: All right. I have more to say, but I want to open it up for the audience. Any questions you have about any topics we've touched or haven't touched back here, we have a a mic to make sure that your question is recorded.
1: Hey Tim, I was at your talk at uh, Summit LA, I think it was five years ago. And I think you were like slowly formulating the blog that is now going to be your book and so on and so forth.
0: I remember back then you were like kind of worried a little about like potential liberal
1: backlash of like of the stuff you were about to say. I'm, I'm curious, like, how do you feel about it now? And how do you feel like things have changed in five years? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, so what he's talking about is something Coleman and I both deal with, which is that both of us are pretty... We tr- I think Coleman Moore has been doing a lot of this. I, I've been kind of getting a lot of this ready in a book that is yet to come out. But part of the reason I love Coleman's articles is because I have no idea what position he's going to take. And he might be criticizing this tribe or that tribe or whatever, right? And so I'm trying to be like that as well. And what that means is you're going to make a lot of people angry, right? You know, you can you have options when you write a political book. You can go right down the middle with one with one what one tribe thinks, and then that tribe will love you. And of course, everyone who who you're criticizing will hate you, and probably won't even read the book, but they'll take quotes out of context and blah blah. I'm trying not to do that. I'm trying to be even handed. And um, and if anything is that high low thing I'm talking about, I'm trying to make the case for the high rungs across the spectrum. You know, the upper right and the upper left and the upper center are all, I think, even even the upper radical left and the upper far right, I think are all productive. And I think it's the lower rungs all across that are bad. Um, and so the thing that your, your question is, you know, in particular, and so the, part of what I focused a lot of my attention on the left, because A, I, I'm of it for most of my life. I've, you know, I've always voted Democrat. I'm from a Democrat, you know, heart really blue suburb. I went to college where everyone's blue. And um, so I feel like I have a better sense of it. And also I think that you know, in the sixties, the most powerful, you know, parts of society were probably country club Republicans and whatever. And that's changed. You know, it's hard to know where all the power lies, but like a lot of the power centers are run by blue right now. And so I think it's important to talk about it. And, but when you criticize, especially people that kind of, you know, consider in in your own kind of world, you know, criticizing Trump, I'm not going to get any, any pushback. I'm just not for a few reasons. One, I don't know that many people who would disagree. Um, and I am criticizing Trump in the book, but I'm not. And and but B, and this is an important point, is that like the people who want to destroy me for my take on Trump, they don't have the power to. They don't have the. They don't. They can't really do anything to me unless they, you know, some violent thing. But that's not common. Like, so I'm just not scared of them. And that that's an important point. I'm like, well, I am scared of actually, you know, the fact that I'm criticizing the left. Like, ugh, I, that could really ruin a lot of things. Well, what's going on there? Why? That's 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 an important point right there. Why am I so? Why is this one group have much more power to hurt me? Is it just that I'm within, you know, that group more? And it's more people, you know, three quarters of my readers voted for Hillary. I know that because I I tested them. But that's, you know, is that the reason? Or is it that pissing off the left right now can ruin your life in a lot of industries in the way pissing off the right can? I don't know. But to to your question, I'm less worried. And and, and either way, I was going to publish it either way because I just think it's important. I don't like the idea of letting what I think are bullies, you know, prevent me from writing what I think I need to say. I'm less worried than I was then. And the reason is, I think, you know, back when I was, this is 2017, and I was making a lot of the same points. This is procrastination, you know, for five years later. Back in 2017, amongst my own world of mostly Obama voters, you know, but, you know, most of them thought I was like, why are you even talking about the left? You know, Trump, like, you know, and, And they thought I was crazy. And today, I would say most of them agree that there's something to say about the left too. And when you, so I I still think, look, there's still going to be, there's still a lot of people who think the other way, who think that I'm off track, hardcore off track, if I'm saying, if I'm, uh, I just think there's a lot fewer of them. And I think we've now had, before then, there was no term cancel culture, right? We didn't even talk about labels, right? This concept existed, but we hadn't, now we've come up with a label, we've argued about it, we see it for what it is. A lot of people have an opinion on it. To me, that makes it less scary because we see what's going on. We can we can call it out when it's happening. So I don't know. Maybe these are famous last words, and I'm hanging from the Brooklyn Bridge and a year and you'll be like, Yeah, I saw that guy speak before he died. But (laughs) but I feel okay. Plus, you know, look, people like Ian Coleman, you know, not that vulnerable. Like maybe. You know, maybe you don't get you know you don't get invited to write something in the New York Times anymore or whatever. I don't know, but we have our own platforms, and I think a lot of people are like that. I think a lot of people are more scared than they should be. Again, like the mammoth, we're more scared than we should be about ridicule and criticism, and even online mobs. When if you take a big step back, you're like, can they really hurt me that much? And often the answer is no.
2: I really agree with the points you highlight about the troubles with such a great divide among these things. And you have all these ideas in a book. What in your wildest dreams? What are like the best outcomes that could happen? after this book or because of it, or where could that, where could that actually go in highlighting all these issues?
1: yeah, my dream with this book would be that, you know, politics are not just left, right, and center. Let's make it a square. Let's make it a, let's bring a vertical ladder. And let's talk about high rung and low rung, which I think can really diffuse a lot of the, you know, if you feel like if you, if you only have one dimension, then if I'm criticizing the left, well, that must make me right. If I'm criticizing Trump, well, I must be a huge leftist, you know? And it's like, I think that is such a limit, not just limiting conversation. It's not just we're missing it. It is actually, it is an inherently impossible productive conversation when you think of there's only d- this vertical thing. And then, so w- there's only this horizontal thing. And then what, what, what do a lot of people say who I think are trying to make a lot of the points that I, who feel the same way? They say, we need more people in the center. You know, we need more, you know, there's a lot of quiet, you know, silent centrists and, I don't think that's what they really mean. Centrist is a a particular policy position. It's a particular place along these spectrums that centrist is about what you think. And I think what they're talking about is a how you think axis. You know, when they say moderate or centrist, if we only have one axis, we have to say that must mean purple. But I think what they really mean, again, I think there are some amazing thinkers who I think are really productive, who are radical left. But radical left when it's productive doesn't try to shut down speech. It doesn't like it's experimental. It's open-minded. It's joyful. It it admits when it's wrong. It knows it's wrong all the time because the radical, you know, stuff is going to be really experimental and bold and it might be wrong. Same with far right, you know, far right when it's on the upper high rungs is the voice of what if we've gone down the wrong path? What if we've gone down the wrong path? What if there's some values that were really important that we've lost in the shuffle? We want that person in the room, right? And so, what I would love is if if this book could help, you know, I'm not the only person who's trying to do this, obviously. If this book could help apply, give some new labels, help expand the language a little bit. It's so, so much of the language, even like the term cancel culture. Well, it starts off a little bit like COVID where it's just an interesting thing and there's debate about it. And then quickly it becomes now, if you're a part of our group, you either, you, you hate that term and you have this very clear view, which is that it is a term that doesn't, it's not really based on anything real. And it is a, it's kind of like a right-wing talking point or you have a view that it's the biggest problem in the world, right? So I'm trying to, what are some new words we can use? What are some new terms? What's a new dimension we can bring in? Maybe the, it can help make the discussions a little more productive. And it's a tall order in today's world. But I think, honestly, I've been inspired by Coleman. To me, he is one of the absolute best high-rung thinkers in politics and brave at a time when like, it's so like, that's just like the, the supply of courage is so low. So like, yes, I'm, I'm part of why I'm honored to be on this. Really- uh, thank you, Tim. I appreciate that.
3: I a question for either of you. Do you agree with the proposition that if our culture, say in the U.S., were to view politics as a public duty, that public service was something that you should do at least once before you die, but like jury duty, that it might actually help to empower people to be more courageous, to take the time to think through issues, questions, and also and not to rush to conclusions, and also to help short-circuit the what seems to be the grotesquery that is this career p- politician, using the outside view of politics for its own ends. Just wondering about that.
0: So you mean running for office?
3: Yeah, at, at any scale, whether it's you know, for mayor, dog catcher, senate, whatever it might be.
0: That's a very interesting question. You know, I don't know what would happen, but what I do know is that unfortunately, you know, being a public servant, which is one of the most important jobs, acts as a kind of bug light for people with power complexes. Right. And it's I mean, this has also long been the problem with the police as well. It's like the very few jobs more important in a community, especially one with crime, than the police. But the problem is it attracts on the one hand the kind of person that really wants to make the neighborhood a better place, but it also attracts the person that likes being a bully. Right. And wants societally acceptable way to express that urge. So sometimes these jobs end up attracting the worst kind of people. And politics is one of those I mean You know, the kind of person that really wants to be president of the United States is unfortunately rarely the type of person that should. I'm not the first person to make this point, obviously. And one interesting thing about seeing someone like Andrew Yang run for president is regardless of what you think about his policy positions, he was one of the most normal people to run for president and sort of kind of come close to being a contender. And you can read this in his, not memoir, but he kind of, he wrote in his book about what it was like to run for president. And I was like, wow, I've never heard like a halfway normal person describe what it's like to go to a rally and be like, holy shit, all these people are yelling my name. I'm like, because almost everyone who does that is kind of not normal. Like they, kind of, a lot of them have a screw loose. So that's an interesting question, how that would actually change if you just had to do it like jury duty or, or something. You know, I, I'm not the first person to think that like a nurse or, you know, just someone with like practical real world experience, common sense might in some cases do a better job than career politicians.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I also like the concept. I think um, part of the the way we can get to such a tribal craze about politics is that we're so removed from actually what's going on. And, you know, you get into this bubble of, there's a Disney movie, there's the good protagonists and the bad antagonists, and it's simple and clear and it's good against evil. And it's just like, that is just nothing to do with what's actually going on. It's just, it's its own game that's happening. So the thing that, that makes me a little like, just cynical about this is at least the current environment. Um, I've talked to some Congress people. When you talk to people one-on-one, you often find reason where you, you wouldn't understand. So I've talked to a lot of Congress people, a few of them, who have said the exact same thing. You know, Derek Kilmer is one of them. He's, you know, he's a moderate Democrat and and a couple others, and they're very frustrated right now because in order to win, it used to be a lot of purple districts. In purple districts, you have a general election. General election incentivizes people in the primary to vote for reasonable people who might be able to maybe be uniters for lots of reasons gerrymandering and also just the parties making deals in order to intentionally say, let's turn these two purples into a red and a blue. We don't have to spend money on either. You know, now we can all spend money on. There's been a lot of that. And just people sorting, you know, people more mobile, move to people, neighborhoods with people like them. And they end up with, you know, much more red and blue districts. In those districts, there is no general election. And so suddenly the incentive isn't, there's no more magnet to reason. There's who is the best good guy who hates the bad guys the most, right? Which is the opposite and i so there's some of these people i've talked to they say you know i have so many you know nuanced policy proposals and i, I actually i we of course need to compromise and i don't hate the other side you know i you have to work with these people and they said those are extinction messages you have that message right now and you're just you're done and so man it's like talking about the problem i mean now it's you know really attracting kind of and it's it's what it is is that it's turning away a lot of people who would be actually great politicians probably um, because I mean, like I would never want to run if I knew the game I'd have to play is to be the bluest blue hero ever who hates the red team. Like that's not, you know, so I think what you're asking is a broader question, not just about, you know, Congress or whatever. And obviously, you're not going to have everyone running for Congress. But so I, th- I think, yes, some more general involvement is great. It's the same reason you have kids do things like community service. I mean, it's good to just, it just, has, it just builds perspective, which can be useful. So I think in a general sense, I would love to see more of that. Just to Coleman's point, I think we have like a serious problem here when it comes to like politicians. Like, and, um, and I don't think it's, un- but I think we need to learn about it and then maybe we can start making changes based on that.
3: Hi, this is for both of you. Uh, you, you spoke about the challenge in politicians being unable to put forth uh, nuanced kind of policy proposals and viewpoints.
1: And you kind of see that in just public discourse today for everyone, right? There's so many issues that have become politicized whether it's racial inequality, or gender, whatever it is, it's very hard even as an individual in conversations to try and take a nuanced viewpoint, right? You're kind of forced into choosing your side and, and sticking with it or being at risk of the firing squad. And so whether it's politicians or just general discourse, how do you think as a society we kind of move beyond that and get to a point where it's okay to have nuanced viewpoints? It's okay to be in the middle somewhere. Yeah, how do we get there and move beyond this, the current moment?
0: That's the million dollar question. I guess to me, the first thing is to make sure that you're not part of the
1: problem. Put your own mask on before helping others.
0: Right. Like, um, I, as much as I want nuanced conversation, how many times in my life have I heard someone else talking and the moment they say something I, that hits a trip wire in my brain, I go, okay, fuck that person right it's like i've done that i've been a part of the problem i'm criticizing and so i think the first thing to do is to train your own habits of mind to be as charitable as possible to other people especially difficult people right this is one of the i think slightly related topic free speech right everyone learns this concept of free speech but they learn it wrong or they learn it in a in a really not useful way because so many people come away from whatever they've learned about free speech and they think, oh yeah, well, I'm totally for free speech. I'm just not for that really harmful speech over there. It's like, well, no, you actually don't understand what free speech means. Free speech, it, it means precisely for the speech you think is harmful, that's the speech you allow, right? It's like the concept of tolerance. It's like, I'm not tolerant if I tolerate my friends. I already like my friends. It's only tolerance when it's someone you don't like. So we, we should just call it free speech for speech you don't like. Because then, then people would, would would learn it better. But you know the, the analogy here is to just make sure that you are not part of the problem of demonizing others for not making nuanced arguments. And then once you've modeled that yourself, then you can begin to demand it of others. And, you know, just try, it's very difficult. Try to have conversations face-to-face. Try to have conversations one-on-one, not in a group. Like Tim just said, you'd be amazed how reasonable people get when it's just two people in a room and the cameras are off and nobody's watching and nobody's reputation is at stake. I've almost never, even with some of the most controversial topics I've ever touched, I've almost never had a bad conversation one-on-one with someone. It's always either when there's, many many people in a room or virtually many people in a room such as online on twitter so deciding the arena for the conversation is a pretty good life hack and um besides that yeah trying to model be the change
1: you want to see in the world extremely well said i would have i agree with all of that uh the only thing i would add is that sometimes um you know if you think about there's i can call kind of I think it's useful again with labels. Well, we all know what an echo chamber is, you know. It's where everyone agrees, right? And and but it's that's an intellectual culture where it's cool to agree and it's rude to disagree, uh, and it and it makes you a bad person if you disagree, you know. And then there's the opposite culture. I call it an idea lab. In an idea lab culture, people disagree vigorously, and it's not seen as rude. It's seen as interesting because no one's attaching themselves to ideas in an idea lab culture. It's I throw an idea out, and it's almost instinct for okay, you know, what people are going to try to poke holes in it, you know. I think you're being biased or are you being hypocritical? Or, you know, it's like, it's a fun game. And I'm like, no, I'm not because, well, I mean, go back and forth. No one's getting their feelings hurt, right? And, and it's incredible how productive Idea lab cultures are. And that can be you and one friend, you and a spouse. It can be a group of friends. It can be a whole room like this. It can be a whole political party, you know. Each of these has an intellectual culture. And I think that Spectrum runs from hardcore echo chamber to like perfect ideal lab and everything in between. But the thing I've noticed so what, what makes a culture because Idealab, seems like it would be what makes sense, right? Let's throw ideas around. And it's this weird thing we do to form echo chambers. And it's this its this this primitive psychology, I think, switches on. And then suddenly, it's like pheromones. We can kind of smell it in the air. And suddenly, oh, you know, I, I don't want to disagree with the group about this. Or, you know, it much, feels much better. It feels much more blissful to just agree here and fit in. And, and, and we're all good together. And it, it, you feel that psychology kicking in in yourself. But what I notice is a lot of the time, and I've learned, I've analyzed because I've you know after coming again with these labels, coming up with these terms, now I see it all over the place. I mean, how how is it? Oh, this is kind of echo chambery at this dinner table. Hold, wait, about this topic, what happened? I often find that it's one person, one ringleader, kind of starts saying, you know, says something like, "Well, of course, you know, the kind of people that think that blah blah blah," and suddenly everyone's like, "Well, yeah, yeah, you know," and and, and very quickly, you know, that culture. Now it's clear the a rule just got set, which is that like we people like us definitely think this. And boom, there goes the idea lab. And I think what you're really seeing is, and I don't think these are bad people. I think we've all been that person. But what you're seeing is you're seeing bullying, just classic intellectual bullying. It's someone basically being like, this opinion is right. And anyone who disagrees, I'm going to actually like punish you socially for that, you know? And, and suddenly it's like middle school and it's like the mean kid and all the, everyone starts being the sidekick to the mean kid. And um, and you don't want to be outgrouped and that, you know, and so when you notice that middle school psychology kicking in, you notice one person doing it, it's you know, that's not an easy situation, but it's empowering when you realize, I don't think that we have to be like this. I think this one person is, you know, or is, is this one bully here is kind of, you know, it can be in a family, it can be one, you know, one sibling is like the person you don't bring up politics around them because it's good. They're being a bully is what they're doing. They're shutting down the conversation because they're a, an intellectual bully about it. So I think a, like Coleman said, first of all, watch out for yourself being the bully. I have been that person I right, for, for sure. But secondly, when you notice it, like realize that the cost of what that person is doing, they are really diminishing the ability of that group to have fun intellectually and to learn and to grow and, and maybe, you know, in gentle ways, start to call it out and push back against it. And um, say, you know, if you start to realize like, man, this person is depriving all of us of an idea lab, that's a call to action versus if you don't have these terms, it's easy to just be like, oh, well, everyone's kind of crazy about politics. I'm not going to, and not really seeing it for what it is. So Watch out for… Look at… you know. It's often the very small group of people who actually are enforcing a lot of this chill on conversation. Most people actually don't want that, I find.
3: Hi, Tim. I have a question about labels and like self-reflection. So do you think it's the labels themselves that help kind of self-reflect? Because you see that, you know, you have a label for some kind of idea. And then you're like, oh, okay, I see it. And now I know what it is. Or do you think it's because… You kind of created, when you create these animal characters, for example, you've sort of created this like independent, like entity that kind of distances yourself from a characteristic of yourself. Um, Is that what kind of helps the self-reflection? Because it's obviously, it's easier to judge other people than yourself. So if there's like, if you kind of created some, like a different person within yourself that you're kind of looking at, is that?
1: That's a great question. I mean, I think it's both. I think, I mean, I think the first thing is just labels help. Take kind of hazy concepts and make it a thing in your head. So now you can see the thing, and you can also, when you have two people, you and your friend, or or you and your group of friends, have that label together. You can, you know, you can all point it out to each other, or you know, or a couple, a couple, a healthy couple can do this. They can say, "Oh, what well, you know, you can have a term for this kind of certain kind of you know." Uh, uh, my sister's a uh, therapist, and she she brought up this term, you know, when you're with uh, your significant other, and one of you is like, "Hey, look at that, you know, that thing outside," and the other one just you just get ignored. You're, or you're just like, you know, you ask a question, very small, but that's a bid and your bid got rejected. And it's actually a super sign of, of, of a troubled relationship. If, if someone's bids are getting hurts, get your bid rejected. And it's little. Once I had that term, boom, oh my God. Now my wife and I are constantly being like, you rejected my bid. And I'm like, oh man, I rejected your bid. Sorry. You know? And it's, so I think that the label is huge, right? That's a the bid is a concept that like I knew about, but once you have the term and especially shared, but your other point is excellent. And I think that's a huge part of this. And I think it's, and I don't think it's some delusion where you're pretending this mammoth or this monkey or this crazy tr- political tribal person in your head isn't you, but it really is. And you're, no, I really think it's not you. I think, you know, Paul Graham has a great line. He says, keep your identity small. And I think that's really good. You know, you, you are not a progressive. You are not someone who is scared of this. Thing. No, you have parts of your brain that feel that way. And you have these thoughts and you have, you go through phases. All you are is this kind of like bare awareness, this naked awareness. I, I think that that's a really healthy place to be because now you get rid of it. It's, it's, it's like you take a bunch of things out of the backpack. You know, you know, this backpack, if it has a lot of, you know, your identity backpack, if it has a lot of labels in it that are part of you, it, it is, it, it, it's heavy and it's heavy and it, and it makes you slow to change and move and you have to defend those things. So you can just say, they're not me. You take them out of the backpack and I think the labels help. By saying this mammoth is, a, is scared of public speaking, I'm not scared, right? The mammoth in my head is programmed to be terrified of it. Suddenly it's like, I, so I, I've now stopped, I've, I've removed this label on myself. I'm someone who is scared of public speaking, which is, that's it. That's, if that's who I am, well, I'm going to die like that. That's just me. If it's the mammoth in my head is okay, well, now I can work with that. So I, I think it's an extremely
3: powerful tool to help keep your identity small. So if we think about what you're calling the, the low dimension in politics, by the way, thanks for making up another dimension. There's probably like 18 others we should include. But let's start with two. That's yeah, good. Better than one. <laughs> um, it seems like the way that works is, you know, as you say, it's kind of beneath reason. It's operating on a more of a, a verbal level almost. It's, it's like a remixing of different words uh, They don't have to even have coherent ideas behind them. It's essentially an an evolution of of what's the most effective words to say, right? And I kind of tied that to your your third topic, which was, you know, kind of machine learning, GPT generating a bunch of words based on other words that it's heard. And I started to think, well, you know, instead of AI bloggers, are there going to be AI politicians or AI-based politicians assistants that'll essentially accelerate that process of being able to optimize you know, or pessimized, depending on your point of view, the effectiveness of that kind of empty political rhetoric. Well, but you don't need AI for it. But could you do a much better job if you had AI? For yeah, I mean, AI enhan- is an enhancer. Exactly. Good
1: and bad, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think um, I don't think we should rely on AI to get us out of this mess, right? I think I think that I think the thing that the thing I always that brings me hope is that in the end, we all want to be cool. We're all still kids that want to be part of the cool kids, whatever that means, as grownups. And when it's cool to be politically tribal, then a lot of people are going to do it. When it's cool to, sh- to publicly shame on Twitter, then people are going to do it. When it becomes, you know, in public, if you notice, people behave very differently on Twitter uh, than they do in person. If after this talk, I'm hearing one of you is like, you know, you're a fucking asshole who blah, blah, blah. You know, it's I'm, uh, that person's not going to look good. They're not going to be cool in this environment. This environment has already decided... That that is not cool behavior, and so people are going to say, "Wow, that person was such an asshole." Even if you all disagree with me, you know, no one's going to like that person, so they're not going to do it. There's a huge social, you know, magnet pulling people into a better place on social media that doesn't exist, right? At least not enough. So you have the, the suddenly you see all this bad behavior. So the thing I always think that we need um, is going to be cultural. That if we become wise to this stuff, like you know, and there, you know, at some point we had developed this social etiquette. You know, it didn't just happen out of nowhere we can kind of, culture can continue to change what it's cool and what's not. And what I hope, you know, a plea that I have in my book is young people, please make political tribalism a thing for lame old people. Make it like the least cool thing is to be like, I'm a hardcore, you know, left or right, you know, like make that like such a lame thing to be. Because if the young people start thinking it's lame, very quickly, it's going to become less of a thing. So as far as your AI question, I mean it's hard. I, 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 I don't know whether AI is going to come in and make this worse or better, but I think, I think AI will probably be, you know, programmed to start doing what we think is cool. So I hope that's what changes first. I don't know if you have.
0: Yeah. Uh, I just tweeted Tim Urban is a fascist. I don't know if that, uh, I mean, I think, so if you were to train an AI on the most successful political rhetoric of the past 10 years, like the best Trump speeches best defined by how much they rallied his base. The best AOC speeches, the best Bernie speeches. I see no reason why it wouldn't, it couldn't, in principle, become better at writing those kinds of speeches and hitting those kinds of kinds of high notes as human speechwriters. Well, the thing is, if it might be an arms race because if every politician has a kick-ass AI sidekick, then all the political rhetoric on all sides will get better, and maybe we become desensitized to it and adjust our expectations. So I don't know.
1: It may be that the AI, that the candidate that realizes, you know, actually a lot of people are really sick of polarization and they're sick of hating half their country. And, you know, they, the AI has figured that out by doing a lot of polling and it starts to write speeches that are much more, you know, think about oh, even Obama, Bass, Obama recently is 2008. His whole thing was, we're not a collection of red states or blue states We're the United States of America. And, you know, that was he, his entire thing. And it was electrifying because there's such a, there's such an instinct in us. I think I think the instinct in us to love each other is way stronger. It's just that it has to be ignited. And so AI could figure that out and start to say, wait a second. No, no, no. We're going to crush all these people by having a message of love and unity. I mean, think about the civil rights movement in this. Crush same. them with love and unity. <laughs> The Iron Fist. But yeah, the, the most exhilarating movements in history have been common humanity. So I, I'm hoping maybe, you know, maybe it's it's that we're being dumb humans by doing the way things we are now and AI will be like, this is not how you win humans over.
2: I'd like to share a hopeful thought and, and wonder what you think about it. Tim, you shared the polarization being so kind of like, basically dumbing things down and keeping us kind of like from not moving because both sides are just always the opposite. And then you also mentioned this effect of you know, the shitstorm that you might trigger when you criticize the wrong people. I wonder if these shitstorms, these powerful symbols, if those are also a hopeful thing. When you think about um, what happened after George Floyd, that video became visible, that abuse was kind of like shared with the world. It changed something. The collective awareness of globally, Uh, or now in Ukraine, we saw these pictures. Being from Germany, it was fascinating to see how quickly the politicians changed things. They never said they want to change. They had very solid: we don't send arms to war areas or conflict areas, or we don't invest into the, the German army because it's not a good thing, or we basically we trust that Russia will deliver gas for the future. And they changed that within a weekend. And I wonder if that is kind of like the hopeful part that we have these powerful symbols and the global society. Not the politicians so much, but the people changed their perspective in a a heartbeat. I, I definitely think that those,
0: we have these moments where we get into a frenzy around particular injustices. And it's akin to when, you know, grasshoppers become locusts. It's like we become unrecognizable. We gather in masses of thousands or more around things that we all find abhorrent in the world and demand change right now. And that's, that's an enormously important impulse that we have because we end up getting change faster uh, as a result of bringing that much attention to an issue. The danger I find is that usually we overdo it uh, when we get into that frenzy mindsets. Like, and once it's all over, we can look back on it rationally and say, well, we actually went a little bit too far right there. Like, We actually shouldn't have burned down that Walmart right like a, there there was an old woman that used that Walmart to get her prescription medicine and we burned it down in the name of George Floyd and no one even knows her name and how much she suffered as a result of this right it's like when we get into the frenzy we end up doing things that we look back on with with regret and that actually weren't necessary to achieve the important goal of say reforming the police but because we're in this frenzy we can't we can't think rationally so it's a double-edged sword. It's necessary, but it's very liable to abuse and to overdoing things.
1: I and mean, what you're talking about is a new source of power, right? Like John Ronson, who wrote the book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, talks about the history of Twitter. And it started off as, you know, radical de-shaming, the opposite of what it is now. You know, people would say, oh, I do this embarrassing thing. People say, I do that too. Ah, You know, and it was like this like nice little place for a while. Then... People discovered something. You know, there's some boss that's been, you know, horrible and sexually harassing his employees. And normally, the employees were helpless. Right? They had no voice. They had no way to do anything about it. And if they tried, they would have just gotten.
0: And if they went to a
1: journalist, they'd have to show ten pages of receipts exactly to get it out there. But no, now- it was. And so that's a glitch in the liberal matrix where this person can do harm without consequence. That's a that's a, external, a negative externality is a mistake going on. And suddenly on Twitter. You could actually start a thing you get to spread the word it gets retweeted suddenly that boss is exposed the lights shining on him and he ends up fired and you know the bosses all around have to shape up. that's exhilarating. It's the new kind of cudgel you know that could be taken in the hands of you know victims and and it corrected the glitch right So now there's now there's consequences there, right? Great problem is you've you know like exactly what Coleman said this cudgel is now here and so what a lot of people are saying, well that was fun. who's next? And maybe there are, you know, there's more, you know, more villains to take down. But it starts to, you know, they start to have people that now their whole identity is I am a cudgel holder and I take down villains. Who's the next villain? And the definition of villain, you know, starts to expand. And suddenly, you know, the definition of a racist starts to expand, and a misogynist, and um, and uh, the word you know right wing starts to be applied to all kinds of things, you know, and 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 it gets associated with being a Nazi, which that word starts to expand. Because now, you know, oh well, we need more, you know, the supply of villains is now lower than the demand. And so we need more, you know, the demand is too high, we need more villains, right? So you see, of course, this is the double-edged sword Coleman mentioned. When there's a new source of power in the world, that is a big deal and it can go either way. And so we have to be wary, you know, you can lose the same thing about weapons, right? Of course, you know. Weapons in some ways can create peace and can and can help protect people, and then also, of course, can create atrocities. So I think, with a, kind of a, a separate point, you know, I'm talking about power and like the ability, but also you're talking about knowledge. And and I think in some ways, you know, if, if you look at the days of the three news networks, and they were you know, and if people said that was much better; it was less polarized. That they had to be accurate. They also told one story, and you know, it took a lot of years for people to figure out the Vietnam War sucked. It would take uh, two weeks today, right? Like. So there's, again, this is great. And, and you can look at like, look at the tech companies and how they all banded together to sanction Russia. Cool, right? That's a big cudgel they just used on a bad guy Putin. Well, maybe it's a little scary if now, you know, it becomes politically fashionable to say any co- country who, who does, has this policy or has this policy or doesn't do social justice the way that Americans think is right. Well, now we're going to use that cudgel on every, you know, you can see how th- these things are scary, which is the only thing the ideal might be to say, let's just not have any, you know, Let's just slow down progress here. But we can't. These weapons are coming, new weapons, new sources of information. And so the best we can do in this rapidly changing world is we need to have a lot of conversations. We need to have conversations is light. We need to have flashlights shining on reality so we can all look at it and say, this is is a good use of that weapon. This is bad. How can we allow this to happen and police that vigorous conversations, which is why the worst thing in a rapidly changing world is when speech gets chilled, because if people become scared to say what they think and to have open conversations, and and that's part of why polarization is so bad, because it uh, it makes a, it kills our ability to have the discussion to see the difference between a protest that is productive and one that's burning down a Walmart. And suddenly, if anyone says anything about that difference, you're in trouble. You know, that's this is when we have a problem.
3: Okay, we have time for one more question. We're gonna go over here. Well, it sound like the woman that was singing in the. No, I guess that's not. So, it's really more of an observation, but you talked about the high rungs and low rungs on the two sort of left-right-center kind of approach, which that in itself is a brilliant insight, I think. It helped me a lot. What I think I've observed is for a lot of people, the low rung is a default position. The topics are often very complicated, very nuanced. A lot of people haven't put the work in to really understand topics like climate change. It's a very complex topic. And so... Rather than put the work in, they just default into that position. They take the position, uh, what's the joke? I could agree with you, and then we'd both be wrong, <laughs> you know? So th- they just default into a certain position. And so it's almost like a lack of thinking that leads to those default positions. I just wonder what your observation is about that.
1: The way, the way I view a political tribe, joining a political tribe, is it's like a cape. And you join this tribe, and they hand you, they say, you're now. you now get your cape. And that cape is you're, you know, you put that cape on and you have meaning and you have purpose and all your opinions are all worked out. You know what you think about everything and you have conviction about everything and you you suddenly can feel like you have knowledge about everything. You know all the answers and you, you, you have identity and you know who you are and your connection. You, you're connected to all these other people. You know, you know why you wake up in the morning. These are the core human needs. And a lot of those are holes for a lot of us because they're hard to fill in life. It takes years and growth and, you know, self-reflection and toiling. And man, this is a but to me, you know, of course, this is a this is a weight loss pill. This is a snake oil, right? This is this is something that it feels like, you know, oh my God, I've solved all my problems. Like you're saying, it's easy, right? Oh my God, who knew? It, it was this was a get rich quick scheme. This was, it turns out it was easy to get rich with all these holes I thought I had. It feels incredible for a while. Uh, I think ultimately, A, it's awful for the world. These people now are doing gonna end up doing harm in the world with their they're mostly well intentioned people. Their, well-inten- their, their well-intentioned efforts are now going to, the vector is going to be pointing in a harmful direction, even with it without them realizing it. But it's also bad for them. If you look at all of the studies of, it is the, the people that are hardcore in these things, they lose their sense of self. they, they, they It enhances anxiety and depression. They're, they're spending a lot, they start to, you know, it's scary to, it becomes, you know, it sounds great until people say, oh, if you don't agree with, you know, if you don't have all the right opinions, you're going to lose your cape become dependent on that cape and you lose your actual, you actually lose your intellectual confidence because you start to think, well, you know, like you don't want to debate. You get really pissed when someone tries to debate you because you think you you've lost your, those muscles of atrophy because you haven't had to use them. So it's awful for the person. And, but your, your point was that that's, you know, I, I think your point is that a lot of times we we get there because of these things. We're not, you know, it's not because we're so political because this cape is great. It's easy. And I think it is a huge problem. And I think I, I think at least um, helping people see that, and helping people like remember that you know all those things that seem hard—they're not easy—and that having um, that, that that the problem you know it, 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 weight loss pills and get rich quick schemes work well until people become wise to them, right? And so I think a good goal would be that, you know, just like we now know that, you know, something that says, you know, low fat, you know, natural, you know, wheat thins, that's not actually healthy for you. And that, you know, get rich quick schemes are not actually going to help you get rich quick. Just like that, I think we should be teaching young people and making them wise consumers of this stuff and say that, you know, and helping, you know, young people understand that this is also a get rich quick scheme. And that would be, that would be a goal I would have. All right. With that. Please help me in in thanking my
0: guest, Tim Urban, and give yourselves a round of applause for coming to this session. Thank you so much. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, ColemanHughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.